which is the chapter three it's about the cell. And we're going to talk mostly today about transport processes in the cells. Transport processes and different mechanisms that the cell use to transport substances across the membrane. On Thursday, we're going to keep talking in the first hour about the cell and transport processes. And in the second part of Thursday, we'll do the lab, which will be done with computers. We're going to simulation using those computers. But we have exercises about transport of substances, calculations, and observe how this happens, and answer some questions in, um, in this uh, computer lab. So let's start with the description of the cell. We're going to talk the cell, cell membrane, and then the transport processes. We have to start with the basic concept of the cell theory. Cell theory. Cell consider the unit of life, structure and function. There is something called principle of complementarity, which is described here in the third bullet point. Structure and function are complementary, which says that the function of the cells are dictated by the shape of the cell and specific structures that the cell has. Like if we talk a muscle cell, a muscular cell, which contracts, well, those cells are very long shape. Those cells contain fibrous proteins inside, and those components will determine the function. So that's what we call the principle of complementarity. The structure determines the function. And another principle of the cell theory is that an organism function depends on what the cells do. So all those combined activities of all different types of cells that we have in our body will determine our functions. Digestion, we eat something and we use the components, the amino acids. Well, that is achieved because there are some cells that produce enzymes, there are some cells that absorb the nutrients, and there are some other cells that will just produce new proteins for our body. Continuity of life has cellular bases. Cells come from other cells. That's how was this stated the first time. Cells come from other cells. And now we know that DNA, reproduction, maybe cellular reproduction or sexual asexual reproduction. We have different types of reproduction, but in general, a cell just must come from another cell, another possible origin. Many different types of cells are seen in the human body, up to 200 different types of cells. And they have different shapes, they have different sizes, different components inside. And as we said, the principle of complementarity, all this determines the function. Now we see some examples here, erythrocytes or red blood cells, which have this discoid shape because they have to circulate in the blood. And the round shape helps better for that like trying to move a ball, you kick the ball and the ball goes rolling. You try to move something else like a brick, you kick the brick and it will not, it will be completely different. It's the same thing. The erythrocytes, red blood cells are round because they, they have to move quick inside the blood vessels. Skeletal muscle, smooth muscle, long cells for contraction. Epithelial cells like cuboids here, like cubes for protection. Fat cells, round with a bubble inside to store fat. The sperm cell with a tail that moves because the sperm cell has to move in the reproductive, female reproductive system, get into the uterus, go to the tube, and look for the egg. So the structure determines the function of all these cells. These are the main concepts of cell theory and cell diversity.
If you did biology before, you know this very well. Quick review of the components of the cell, plasma membrane, cytoplasm, and nucleus. So we're going to focus on some important functions of each part. Plasma membrane, cytoplasm, and nucleus. In the cytoplasm is where we find all the organelles. Nucleus, that's where the DNA is. And this diagram shows these three main components and things that are found in the cytoplasm, all the organelles, mitochondria, ribosomes, lysosomes, etc. So let's start with the plasma membrane. Some ideas about the plasma membrane. It's a main barrier, it's a main barrier that separates two compartments, intracellular compartment from extracellular compartment. And what's in those compartments? Fluid. So we can say the membrane separates intracellular fluid from extracellular fluid. And this is where we come with the transport, because the cells need substances to come inside and substances to go outside. So there must be mechanisms that move these substances across the membrane from the intra to the extra or backwards. What is a plasma membrane made of? We said a little bit, we talk about fats, we said phospholipids, lipids in the membrane, plus proteins. In something that was described some time ago as a model called a fluid mosaic which is a very dynamic thing. It's not like uh, just bricks forming the barrier. They're all like little substances, like lipids, proteins, moving and changing positions, many of them at different times. There are sugars also attached to proteins called glycocalyx. The prefix glyco comes from glucose or sugar. And all these cells are together, bound by junctions, connections, that we call cell junctions. Remember, the cells are not just individual, solitaire, they're just in groups, forming tissues at different levels. Cells forming tissues. The lipids, composition of the membrane. The lipids are made of 75% phospholipids, and as we described before, the lipids have, these phospholipids have two, two poles, the heads, which are hydrophilic, and the tails, which are hydrophobic. 20% cholesterol. Now, what is the cholesterol doing in the membrane? Well, it provides a stability. That is the function of the cholesterol, and the membrane provides a stability. And 5% glycolipids, some lipids with sugars attached to it. They usually work as recognition, like tags. They're different for different types of cells. So 75% phospholipids, 20% cholesterol, and 5% glycolipids. How about the proteins? Proteins are almost half of the mass of the plasma membrane. So we say membrane, we say proteins plus phospholipids. What the proteins do here? There are many different functions, many different functions. They kind of float, kind of float in the sea of phospholipids. Some of them are attached to other proteins which are uh, structure proteins. In general, we describe two types, integral proteins and peripheral proteins. And in the picture, we can see this better. I'll show you here. We'll see integral proteins. They are inserted into the membrane. They are like going across in the layer of phospholipids. Transmembrane proteins, we call them, because they have one 
part of it exposed to the extracellular compartment and part of it exposed to the intracellular compartment with hydrophobic, hydrophilic regions. And most of these integral proteins are transport proteins. We'll see later how important they are in the transport of substances across the membrane. Some of them, they have the form of channels, pores. Some others work as carriers, bring substances inside. Some others are enzymes. They favor chemical reactions happening there in the membrane. Or just receptors. Receptors like antibodies, they recognize receptors on the surface of the cell, which are proteins. Integral proteins, all of these. Peripheral proteins, they are attached to the integral proteins, but they are like filaments. They're fibrous proteins on the intracellular surface that provides instability or function as enzymes, cell-to-cell -cell connections, and sometimes they change the shape of the cell. So if we see something like this as the phospholipids, all of a sudden we see an integral protein. The integral protein. It's a transmembrane protein because it's exposed to the intracellular compartment and extracellular compartment. This is a protein. Now what are the Peripheral proteins, they are usually here. They are like filaments attaching to the integral proteins. And they are in the intracellular compartment. That's the difference between the integral and the peripheral proteins. These peripheral proteins, they work in as enzymes because they are facing the inside. They're motor proteins to change the shape. Imagine here if they contract, they will change the shape of the membrane, change the shape of the cell. Or for cell-to-cell -cell connections. Here we have some examples of proteins and different functions that they can have. These in, uh, integral proteins. We have them for transport here. And we see how these little things are going through the, the channel inside the middle of the protein. Receptors, some signals come and connect to proteins that work as receptors. Attachment to cytoskeleton. Here we see the peripheral proteins, the filaments, and they're also attached to outside sometimes. Enzymatic activity, these proteins working as enzymes. Intercellular joining, we have two different cells here, one membrane of one cell, second membrane of the second cell, and the proteins are connecting two cells. Or cell-to-cell -cell recognition, one cell recognizes the other one, and that's usually achieved by the glyco component of the protein. Sugar connected to one of these proteins for recognition. These are functions of the integral proteins, proteins inside the membrane in between the phospholipids. Glycocalyx, we mentioned them, we saw them, carbohydrates attached to lipids or proteins. If they attach to lipids, those molecules are called glycolipids, and if they attach to proteins, we call them glycoproteins. What are they good for? Well, they are for, they work as biological markers, cell-to-cell -cell recognition, and the immune system recognition. Those are, this is basically recognition of different types of cells. The glycocalyx is different for each type of cell, and that's why the immune system cells can recognize the different types of cells. Some words about cell junctions. All cells are part of tissues. And they have different types of junctions. There are some cells that work individually, like the sperm cell, regular cells, or 
most of them, they are together as tissues. Tie junctions, desmosomes, and gap junctions. We'll see how they work. Tie junctions, integral proteins. Integral proteins on two cells, two neighbor cells, for instance, they get together and they connect, they fuse, and form a junction that is impermeable. Fluids cannot leak through these junctions, tight junctions. Where do you think we can find this type of junctions? In what part of the body? Well, there shouldn't be leakage of fluid. Where? Where? One part of the body, one tissue, one part. How about the intestines? How about the skin? Well, think about these tissues, and they're usually very, very impermeable. The water, fluids, not supposed to leak in between cells. There may be some transfer of water across, but there's no leakage of fluids in between these cells. We see the graph, how these tight junctions work. We see the cells, and they are like zippers. These proteins from two cells, they are fusing to each other, connecting, and forming these tight, tight junctions. No leakage possible. They are impermeable. Desmosomes. A different type of protein, C-adherins, C-adherins of two neighbor cells, they connect and they provide certain strength. They are not only impermeable, but also very strong connections. They connect like buttons. It's a button-like connection. And even more, keratin filaments connect these two of these uh, formations called desmosomes. So uh, before I was mentioning the keratin as an example of a fibrous protein, and we said it's present in the fingernails, and it's present in the skin also. So desmosomes are typically found in epithelial tissues like the skin, the desmosomes. Very strong, very strong connections. And thanks to them is that we can even stretch our skin without tearing it apart because of these strong connections. We see like these buttons, these filaments are keratin. They are practically crossing between two neighbor cells, as we see here. These are the C adherings, like a zipper, interacting to each other. And gap junctions are connections, also proteins, but these proteins are transmembrane proteins that are called connexons. They have pores. So actually there is an exchange. There's exchange of cytoplasmic fluid or components in between two neighbor cells. Ions, electrolytes, sodium, potassium, calcium, simple sugars, other molecules can pass from one cell to another next to it. And also electrical signals. So where we find gap junctions, here are two examples muscular cells, especially cardiac muscle cells. Smooth muscle cells also, but mainly cardiac muscle cells. Now we see the example of the gap junction. There's a channel in between. The connections, they have a channel, and they allow exchange of cytoplasmic components especially calcium in the case of the cardiac muscle cell. The cardiac muscle, when um, a signal, electrical signal comes in and stimulates one cell, well, that signal is passed on to the next cells and to the rest of them. So all of them get activated, thanks to the gap junctions. Okay, now let's see the transport across the membrane. How do the substances move across the plasma membrane? 
Plasma membranes are considered selectively permeable membranes, which means that some molecules can go easily across and some molecules are not. Two types of transport. Two types of transport. We have passive transport, passive process, and active process. And the name passive and active means that active and active transport processes of transport energy is required. We know energy is provided by the ATP. So ATP molecules are required and consumed for this active process to happen. Passive transport. Let's start describing passive transport. Passive, no energy involved, no energy required. There are two types, diffusion and filtration. Diffusion, types of diffusion may be simple diffusion, carrier and channel mediated, facilitated diffusion, and also and filtration is usually something that happens across the walls of the blood vessels, especially the smallest blood vessels called capillary blood vessels. And that's how the nutrients, they get to the different cells when they are transported in the blood. They get to the smaller blood vessels and they filtrate. They filtrate to outside the blood vessels so the cells can take those. All these are passive transport no energy required. So let's see how this happens. Diffusion first. Diffusion follows a rule. The molecules will flow or move for a place where they are in high concentration to a place where they are but in less concentration. From where we have more to the place that we have less. That's how the molecules move. That difference is what we call concentration gradient. Concentration gradient. If I bring here to the room and everyone is with eyes closed and folded, and I bring in a just cooked piece of meat, still warm, like a hamburger, and I bring it inside the room, nobody sees that. But in less than two minutes, the person at the end of the room will smell that and say, that's a hamburger. Why? Because that smell, those air molecules, will start diffusing in the room from the place of higher concentration around the hamburger to a place of lower concentration. There was nothing over there, so the molecules will move in that way and diffuse. That's just simple diffusion. And that happens in gas, that happens in fluids, uh, molecules that are in fluids. So, diffusion is movement of molecules down their concentration gradients from high to low. That's all it is. No energy required. The molecules will just move. And all the molecules are moving, collided to each other, moving all around. That happens at a certain speed. That speed may be influenced by the size of the molecule and the temperature. We increase the temperature of a solution and that's how it's better to dissolve sugar in hot coffee than in cold coffee. It's much quicker in hot coffee than in cold coffee. It happens, but it takes longer in cold. So naturally, the molecules move in that way, and that's called concentration gradient. But if the molecules want to go and it gets close to the plasma membrane, they will not easily diffuse to the inside. There will be a concentration gradient that is created. And the membrane is selectively permeable. So some of these molecules will get in, some others will not. This is another example when we get a dye pellet here and put it inside the solution, and after some seconds we see how the um, the dye will diffuse, and after some minutes, the whole water is staying in the same way, sustained in the same way, uh, uniformly, homogeneous, 
because of the fusion of the molecules of the dye. So the membrane blocks the diffusion of some molecules. Some other molecules will go across, follow the following their concentration gradient. Watch mo which molecules will go passively through the membrane. Molecules are a lipid soluble. Molecules are a lipid soluble. Nonpolar substances, very small molecules, they just go through the membrane or channels that are present in the membrane. If the molecules are larger, they cannot go easily. They have to be assisted by carriers. And that's why in the classification we have simple diffusion and we have facilitated diffusion because carrier molecules are needed, especially if the molecules are large. So examples of simple diffusion, oxygen, carbon dioxide, fat-soluble vitamins, they go by simple diffusion. They just enter into the cell. The only thing that is required is a concentration gradient. There must be more outside than inside, and those molecules will get in, inside easily by simple diffusion. And that is expressed in this diagram. We have some lipid-soluble molecules outside, and we, we have less number of them inside, so there's a concentration gradient, and these molecules will go easily across because they are lipid-soluble. They will diffuse across the phospholipid membrane. But concentration gradient is required for this to happen. Facilitated diffusion. Some molecules, they need, they need help, they need assist, assistance. Like glucose, amino acids, and some ions. Concentration gradient is still needed. There must be more outside than inside so they can come in. But they cannot come in by simple diffusion. They need carriers. They need a carrier that facilitates that diffusion, and that's called carrier-mediated. Or there must be a channel, substances that move through water-filled channels, special channels that will bring these molecules in. That's why it's called facilitated. Concentration gradient is required, but additional help is needed, like a carrier or a channel. Glucose goes inside in this way. What are the carriers? Well, are proteins, integral proteins, transmembrane integral proteins. Glucose carries, for instance. There are specific proteins in the membrane that will carry the glucose and bring it inside the cell. But only glucose. And the carriers, they're limited number. So just an amount of glucose will come in. There's a limited transport because there are carriers only. They cannot just go freely. If the carriers are saturated, then no more glucose can come in. But that balance is properly kept, and the cell gets what the cell needs, and uh, depending on the number of carriers. And even if you see the action of the insulin, the insulin is this protein that we described as helping to lower the glucose levels. How it works? Well, increase the carriers for glucose in the membrane so the cells can take up more glucose. If the cells take up more glucose, well, they less, there will be less glucose in the blood. That's how the insulin works, increasing the number of carriers for glucose. What's the diagram of, uh, of a carrier? This is an integral protein. Uh, with the specific shape for molecules of glucose and bring them in, bringing them in by facilitated diffusion. There are more molecules outside than inside, plus the carrier and the glucose comes inside. Channels. Channels <clears throat> are also transmembrane proteins and they are transporters for ions or water. 
again, down their concentration gradient. There are some channels that are for water, and if that is the case, those channels are called aquaporins. And there may be, they may have some control. Some of them, they have gates. We call gated channels. They're controlled by chemical signals or electrical signals. We see more of that when we get to the nervous system and the physiology of the nervous system. Leakage channels are always open, allowing transport all the times. Out of batteries here. And that's how the channels look like. Again, remember, there must be a concentration gradient. And the presence of the channels, and then the molecules will come. Osmosis. Let's talk about osmosis now. Osmosis is defined as diffusion of water. Uh, this may be a little confusing because we're not talking about molecules of some solute. We talked about solutions before, so remember there's a solute and a solvent. But in this case, we talk about the water, about the solvent. And the water moves following the concentration gradient as any other molecule. But osmosis is defined in terms of the solute or in terms of the solvent. And we see it's defined as a movement of the solvent across a selectively permeable membrane. The water diffuses through plasma membranes. It moves across the lipid by layer, even though water is polar, but it's so small that it can go inside. Or may go inside through the channels that we call aquaporins. In either way, the water will come inside the cell. How it will move? following their concentration gradient. If there is more water outside and less water inside the cell, the water will come inside, following that principle of movement of molecules. And that is expressed here. We got molecules of water outside in more amount, less number of molecules inside, the presence, the presence of aquaporins, and the water will come inside following their concentration gradient. So we may say that osmosis is simple diffusion of water, or facilitated because there are channels. In any way, is diffusion of, of water. But water is not just alone. The water is a solvent. It's a universal solvent. So the water is mixed with solutes. And that's why we talk about the water in terms of the solutes that we find. Osmolarity is a measurement of a concentration of the solutes that we find in the water. And there will be more or less water depending how many solutes we have in that solution. So that's what we say here. When solute concentration goes up, there will be less water, or vice versa. If there's less solute, there will be more water. That's why we can express or define osmosis in terms of the water or in terms of the solute. We may say water moves by osmosis from an area of high concentration of water, which means low concentration of solute, to an area of low concentration of water, or what is saying to say, high concentration of solute. And this is where the confusion may come, because we can define osmosis in two different ways, in terms of the water or in terms of the solute. If we define in terms of water, we just describe it as any other molecule. The water will move from an area of higher concentration to an area of lower concentration of water. But if we express it in terms of solute, it's backwards. We will say the water will move from an area of lower concentration of solute to an area of higher concentration of solute. We 
which is just a different way of saying and expressing the words. But it's the same thing, it's the same process. But there must be, the condition for osmosis to happen is that the membrane, there must be a membrane that separates and that memory has to be selectively, selectively permeable. It must allow the effusion of water, but not the solute. Do you have a question? Yeah, can you repeat what you said about the diffusion? Yeah, it's, it's, you have to write it down probably later many times and figure this out because that's saying it twice and make it not so clear. Yes, so we can express osmosis Osmosis is movement of water, okay? Starting with that. Yeah. Part of, like, um, the water and the solvent. Mm -hmm. Yeah. When the water, I mean, the water is always as a solvent. And it's as part of a solution. Solutes and solvent. So when we want to say or express osmosis in terms of diffusion of water, movement of water, we can say the water will move from an area of higher concentration of water to an area of lower concentration of water. But if we count the solutes that are in that solution, what the water is, we may say water will move from an area of lower concentration of solute to an area of higher concentration of solute. We see some examples to, to see this much better. Um, here. Take a look at this system where we have water and a solute, which are the red things. So this is a solution. And these arms, these parts, these tubes, are separated here by a membrane which is called freely permeable. It means that it allows movement of water and movement of the solute. Both. And so what happens is, if we add here, this side, a solution with greater osmolarity, which means more solute, high concentration of solute, and in this side we have a solution with lower osmolarity, well, equilibrium would be reached after some minutes. And both solutions, after some minutes, both solutions will have the same osmolarity, why? Because this membrane is freely permeable. Water will move. Solid will move. So they will diffuse equally in both sides of the system. This membrane is allowing movement of both. But if we move to this other example, and we have the same system, but now it's separated here by a membrane which is not freely permeable, it's selective of permeable membrane. Meaning that water is free to move. So this membrane allows the movement of water. But these pores are small, too small to allow the solutes to, to move across. So this membrane is only allowing movement of water, not the solutes. So we place a solution with high concentration of solutes here and left compartment a solution with less concentration of solutes, what is going to happen after some minutes? The water will move, but the solute will not. And the water will move following the definition from the area of higher concentration of water to an area of lower concentration of water. Where is more water, here or here? In the left or the right? There's more water, clear. Here there's more water and less solute. Here, the right side, there's less water and more solute. So the water will move in this direction. And that's what we see here. The water is moving in this direction. Now, after some minutes, this small amount of solution has the same concentration of this high amount of solution. They both have the same concentration. But there's more water here. The water has moved. This is osmosis, movement of water. But there has to be a selectively permeable membrane 
And this is what the cell membrane is. It's a selectively permeable and it tends to equilibrium. The equilibrium is to reach and to make that both sides have the same concentration of solutes. There will be more solutes here. Yeah, but there's more water now. And it's the same concentration here. There's less water, but there's solutes also. That's what is most. And this happens. We extrapolate this to the cell membrane. Well, this will be the cell membrane. This may be inside or outside the membrane. And this happens all the time, when the solutes and water are in different concentrations in both sides of the membrane. Questions, comments? As I said, this is one of the concepts that may be a little hard to um, understand because you can express it in both ways, in terms of water and in terms of solutes. And we usually need some examples to, uh, to get the point and, and to move forward. Let's see some other examples here before that. Now this determines some pressures. What are pressures? Well pressures are the effect of molecules moving in one direction or other. Well, if we're talking about water and solutes, well, there are two types of pressures. Hydrostatic pressure is the pressure of water pushing one side to another. And osmotic pressure is exerted by the solutes. Depending on the number of solutes that we have, we have pressure in that sense. More solutes inside a cell, higher the pressure. This is called osmotic pressure. Osmotic pressure is in relation to the number of solutes. So if we say there's more osmotic pressure, that means there's more solutes there. Now this happens, as I said, in the cells. And in the cells, the cells have a limited volume. And if there are dramatic changes in the concentration of solutes and the amount of water, the cells may be damaged. And the cells may explode, burst, or they, sh they may shrink. And in either way, it will disrupt the function of these cells, especially if we talk about some very specialized cells like the neurons. If the neurons get, like, lose water or gain water, they will affect the function very dramatically. There's something called cerebral edema. Cerebral edema that is present when some people have a trauma in the head and a stroke. Well, there is fluid, increased num amount of fluid in the brain tissue. And that may lead to swelling of the neurons. And the neurons swell, they may burst, they die. So it's very, very important that we control cerebral edema in this type of patients because of osmosis. Osmosis will happen there. Now this happens in many biological systems and many, bio, uh, many uh, fluids, body fluids. Um, and there's another concept called tonicity. Tonicity is that ability of a solution to change the shape of the cells by changing the volume that they have, the volume amount of water that they have. The blood. Let's talk about the blood. The blood is fluid and it contains cells. The cells are circulating in the blood. Red blood cells are the cells in the blood. Well, these cells, they have inside fluid, intracellular fluid, that has a determined concentration of solutes and water. Well, outside the red blood cell, in the blood, the fluid, the plasma, that fluid has the same concentration of solutes and water than inside the cell. That's what we call isotonic solution. That's the first one here. Same osmolality as inside the cells. Volume remains unchanged. 
that happens in our blood. Red blood cells, they have the same concentration of solutes inside, outside the red blood cell, in the plasma, in the blood, same concentration of solutes in water. The red blood cells keep the shape, they work without any problem. Isotonic solution. In contrast, we may have hypertonic solutions or hypotonic. What they mean? Hypertonic, as the name says, hyper, the solution outside has higher osmolarity. So there are more concentration of solutes outside the cell. And hypotonic, the solution will have lower osmolarity than inside the cell, which is less number of solutes, the concentration of solutes. If we put, if we place the cell under these conditions, hypertonic or hypotonic, things will happen. If we place a cell in hypertonic solution, that cell will shrink. And if we place that cell in hypotonic solution, that cell will burst, will swell up. How? Well, we see this example in the graph. The red blood cell. The red blood cell first in isotonic solution. So there is an outside, there's the same concentration, same osmolality than inside. So you see these arrows in two directions. The water is moving in two directions in the same amount. So this red blood cell will not change its shape, will remain always in this way. But if we place this red blood cell in a hypertonic solution, there will be more solutes outside the cell than inside. So therefore, osmosis will happen. The water will come out because there is more water inside the cell than outside. And the water will come out. And the reaction, will, the consequence will be shrinked red blood cell like this. Hypotonic, we place this cell in a solution with less concentration of solutes than inside. The water will come inside the cell and this cell will swell up like this. And it keeps going, it will just burst. These are examples of what may happen in the blood or with the red blood cells if we expose them to different types of solutions. Isotonic, hypertonic or hypotonic and all these based on the principles of osmosis. The infusions that we give to patients like IV solutions, they are isotonic fluids. We never give hypertonic solutions or hypotonic solutions, blood infusions, because this is what may happen. We may destroy red blood cells by shrinking them or swelling up, burst all these red blood cells. It's much better to use isotonic solution. We use isotonic solutions. The red blood cell will not change its shape. We can keep working without any problem. So this is called tonicity of a solution. And uh, we may put numbers here like an isotonic solution like the solutions that we use for saline that we give to patients is a 9% or 0.9% solution. Concentration of sodium chloride is 0.9%, which means 9 or 0.9 parts in 100 parts. That's a solution. That's the same here inside, 0.9. But if we talk about hypertonic, that means that if I place a solution of two here, there will be more osmolality here than here, the water will come out. Well, hypertonic solution. The red blood cell in a solution of distilled water, just distilled water without any salt solute. That's zero. There's more water here than here. There's less solute here than here, and the water will come inside. 
have the swarm of red blood cells. So these two concepts, osmosis and tonicity, are very important to understand later things like cerebral edema, pulmonary edema, the swelling around the ankles that happens in patients with kidney disease, kidney failure, the swelling that happens people with cardiac failure, and there are many other examples, all of them based on these principles of osmosis and tonicity. And as I said, I recommend you to stop a little bit with these concepts and these concepts and uh, review them with more detail. If you did this before, go and review that. If you have problems with this, go and read from different sources. And we can, that's the reason why we have the lab this Thursday, so we can discuss about these things, viewing examples and working with this software that contains very good examples about how this happens with specific numbers and so we can understand much better. So we talk about passive transport, passive processes. Now, the other part are active transport processes. Active transport, vesicular transport. There are two types of active transport. Both require ATP. That's the difference. Why? Why ATP is needed? energy is needed. Why? Because the solute may be too large for the channels. Solute may, may not be lipid soluble. Or the solute is not able to move down the concentration gradient. Perhaps, perhaps the concentration gradient is in the other way around. But we still need, the cells still need to get that molecule inside. For that, ATP energy is required. I will see how this happens. We start signing the roster, please pass it on. Carriers are needed. Carrier proteins. And in active transport, what happens usually is that the solids have to be moved against their concentration gradient against the concentration gradient. It's like going upstream. It's against the current. And for that, ATP is required. The carrier proteins are usually called pumps. And the reason they are called pumps is because they have to pump solutes, they have to pump substances against the concentration gradient. And for that, ATP is required. Sometimes these carriers are they carry multiple substances, uh, like sodium potassium pump is one good example of this. There are two types of active transport, one of them called primary active transport. That's the one that requires direct energy directly coming from ATP hydrolysis. The secondary active transport requires energy, uh, but it may be obtained indirectly from ionic gradients that are created already by primary active transport. But the most commonly that we see, and we usually um, explain this in terms of ATP hydrolysis. Secondary may come after. So what happens is that, let's say sodium is brought inside the cell by active transport and it creates a concentration gradient and a secondary ion may be brought in by secondary active transport. So the potassium pump is the best example of this active transport. <clears throat> this is the most studied pump because it's present in every single cell, but mostly in the nervous cell, the neuron, and muscular cells, skeletal muscle, cardiac muscle, smooth muscle. It is a protein, it's a transmembrane protein, integral protein, that works as an enzyme. That enzyme is going to break down the ATP. And it has sites for sodium and potassium. 
And what it's going to do is bring sodium out of the cell and potassium back into the cell. That's how this potassium pump works. Get sodium out of the cell and potassium inside the cell. And it's called sodium-potassium pump or sodium-potassium uh, ATPase because it's a protein and works as an enzyme. Examples of we said nerves and muscles. And secondary active transport, as I said, sometimes by primary active transport, a concentration gradient is created. And other molecules will take advantage of this gradient, concentration gradient, and will just come in. But it's a gradient that's been created by primary transport. Here we see a representation of the sodium-potassium pump. Sodium-potassium pump, as we say, is an integral protein that works as an enzyme. Here we see the ATP. And this sodium-potassium pump has places here, sites for sodium and for potassium. And we see how the sodium is brought out and the potassium brought in by consumption of ATP. Secondary at transport, well, there is a creation of a concentration gradient here first, and the sodium will then be brought in, taking advantage of this concentration gradient that has been created. And vesicular transport is a type of active transport also, but if the molecules, these particles are really large, very large, that cannot be carried by a molecule, well, vesicles will be formed. And for that also, this ATP is also required for that. We have endocytosis and exocytosis, two types of vesicular transport. Endocytosis brings the substances inside, and there are different types, phagocytosis, penocytosis, and receptor-mediated endocytosis and exocytosis transport out of the cell. Sometimes when a molecule is brought in, it travels across the cell, and then it's gotten out of the cell, we call it transcytosis because it goes all the way across the cell. That happens in the digestive system when absor absorption of nutrients happens, for instance. Endocytosis, molecules are brought in, a vesicle is formed, very selective because receptors detect what type of molecule is needed. Sometimes pathogens like virus can attach to those receptors and be brought in the cell, and of course infect the cell. But once inside the vesicle, is fused with a lysosome, or keep going to the other side of the cell, and turning into transcytosis. And in this diagram, we see all the steps of endocytosis, and uh, if we start here in one, we see here some substances being engulfed by a vesicle of the plasma membrane. And this plasma membrane, I mean this vesicle, can join a lysosome and digest all these products and they eliminate here by transcytosis to the other side of the membrane. So whenever a vesicle is involved, it's because the molecules are large. They cannot be carried by simple uh, diffusion or active with ATP. They need to be engulfed. An example of large molecules, long proteins, complex vitamins, hormones. They have to be brought in into the cell, be brought in into the cell, but vesicle transport is needed in that case.
Okay, let's stop it here. And um, 